Okay, so welcome everyone. Welcome everybody to today's uh, shiur. Uh, we are starting in Parashat Yitro. And first of all, let's discuss a little bit about Yitro. Yitro was Moshe Rabbeinu's father-in-law. And Yitro had the merit of having the today's parasha and his name. Uh, so the Ten Commandments, which is not Ten Commandments, we're going to talk about the Ten Sayings that changed the world. The Ten Sayings that changed the world, they're in Parasha Yitro. So it's very important to know that, that Yitro was Moshe Rabbeinu's father-in-law. Rashi says that he had tried every single idolatry out there. Moshe Rabbeinu's father-in-law had tried every single idolatry out there, and he had come to the conclusion that there's only one God. He came to this fantastic conclusion that there's only one God, and he came to join the Jews in the desert. That took a lot of willpower. He left his house, he took his family with him, and he came and he joined the Jews in the desert. We do find later on that his descendants joined the Jewish people as well. So we find that in the story of Sisera and Yael, Yael, uh, Yael was in the time of Devorah, the prophetess, and Yael was the one who uh, dispatched Sisera, who was the enemy of the Jews, and she was the wife of the Kini, who the commentaries say was a descendant of Yitro. So Yitro's descendants joined the Jewish people. So obviously Yitro was very, very special, a former priest of idolatry who did teshuva and found God through all the idolatries. And obviously Moshe Rabbeinu was a catalyst in Yitro's life. So he comes to visit Moshe Rabbeinu, he brings his wife, Moshe Rabbeinu's wife and children, and he joins the Jewish people uh, before the Ten Commandments. That's according to the order of the parasha, and he has the honor and privilege of having the Ten Sayings written in his parasha. So what did Yitro hear that brought him? So there's a whole discussion in the Gemara, and there's different opinions. What did Yitro hear that brought Yitro closer to God? So one opinion says he heard about the Yamsuf, the crossing of the sea. He heard about the manna coming from heaven. He heard about the fight with Amalek, how the Jews beat Amalek. So there's a lot of different things that Yitro heard that brought him closer. But obviously, it was the attitude of Moshe Rabbeinu. We see over here a very important idea, the idea of welcoming strangers in. The idea of welcoming in strangers. And that was Moshe Rabbeinu went to greet Yitro. And he welcomed him in with a tremendous honor, tremendous glory. And Yitro came. And according to most opinions, Yitro converted to Judaism. So Yitro became a Jew. And that's number one. Number two is we find that there's a preamble to the giving of the Torah. There's a preamble to the giving of the Torah on Har Sinai, on Mount Sinai. And that is that Hashem tells us on the third month from coming out of Egypt. So they came out of Egypt, Nisan. Then you have Er, and then you have Sivan. On the third month, that's Sivan, the, that's, uh, the Torah was given. The Torah says, on the third month, when they came out of Egypt, from the land of Egypt, on this day, they came to Mount, to the desert of Sinai. They left Rifidim. Rifidim, by the way, has a bad connotations from the word Rafui. Raji says they were soft in Torah. They were not so anxious to learn Torah and Rifidim. They left Rifidim, and they went and camped to the desert, that's the desert of Sinai. And then it says the famous words, and the Jews camped. Now the word Vayichan, should really be Vayachanu in the plural, but it says they camped in the singular. And here we see over here a very important idea. We see the idea of unity, that the preamble to Matan Torah, the preamble to getting of the Torah is unity. And this is something that we have to, especially today in our day and age, 
this is a big failure in our system of encouraging unity. We find this in Israel today with the elections coming and see how many groups and how many parties there are. It's just, there's no unity. We need unity more than ever. And the secret of getting the Torah was this unity. All the Jews camped in the singular. Rashi says, They were like one man, one person with one heart, with one intention. They were totally united, totally uh, coalesced as a group. They coalesced as a group. And this is something we have to work up to uh, for the final redemption. We have to work through up to this unity. We all have to start struggling with this mitzvah, that we are all from one father, as the spies, the 10 spies, which are all the 10 children of Yaakov said, we are all from one father. We're all from one family, all of us. A one family, which family are we? We are B'nai Israel. We are the sons of Israel. All of us are one family. We're called B'nai Israel. We're the children of Israel. We have to work to this unity. The Jews camp as one facing the mountain. And Moshe goes up to God, and God calls out to the mountain, and he says, Go and say to the house of Jacob. Who are the house of Jacob? And this is a famous Rashi over here in which the Beit Yaakov movement, which is the Beit Yaakov schools, are based on this Pasuk, say to the house of Jacob. Rashi says, speak softly to the women. The house of Jacob, the women, but speak harshly to B'nai Israel. When you speak to the women, speak to them nicely. When you speak to the men, scare them a bit. What does he tell you? You saw what I did to Mitzrayim. And you saw, and I took you out. I'm literally uh, translated as I took you out on the wings of eagles. Rashi says, because the eagle is the only bird that flies higher than everyone else. He's not worried about enemies from above because he's the highest bird. He's worried about enemies from below, which is human beings. They may shoot him. And therefore he puts his body between him and his children. He puts his children on top of his wings. And that's how Hashem took us out of Egypt. He put himself between uh, he put himself, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire between us and the Egyptians. So he carried us on his wings. And it's interesting because when the Yemenite Jews came to Israel in the 40s, in 1948, it says, when they saw the airplane, they weren't amazed. Even though they came from a very backward technology, backward society, when they saw the airplane, they said, wow, these are the wings of eagles, which Yeshayahu, Isaiah the prophet predicted. So they, they saw the plane and they really believed this is it. This is the time of redemption where Hashem predicts he's going to bring us back from the four corners of the world on the wings of eagles. So the wings of eagles are right here in this week's parasha. Hashem protected us like an eagle protects his young. And then Hashem says this amazing word I want to focus on. If you listen to my voice, and you keep my covenants, you will be a special nation. This is the idea of a chosen nation, a chosen nation, from all the nations, the whole world belongs to me. So you will be a chosen nation, you will be a special nation, and you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and that's what Hashem told uh, Moshe to tell the Jews before the giving of the Torah. This is one of the preambles to the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. So he told the Jews that they should be a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So the question we have is why the double language? What's the difference between a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? So priests are people who are set aside to worship God, whose main concern in, in life is spiritual. So they have to worship God. They're priests. 
the word Mamlechet, which is a kingdom, speaks of a material world. So to be a kingdom of priests seems to be a contradiction in terms. So I'm a priest, I'm not involved in the material world. A kingdom implies you're involved in the material world. So it's, it speaks of government and running men's affairs on earth about doing a living, earning a living similarly. So a kingdom of priests seems to be contradictory. And then it continues, and a goy kadosh. A goy literally means a nation which has earthly connotations. A goy is a nation which has earthly connotations. And a holy nation. A holy nation has spiritual connotations. So both these different <coughs> parts of the sentence, we have this dichotomy between the holy and the mundane, the priestly and the kingdom, the nation and the holy nation. So Hashem, why does Hashem use this term? And the reason is a very important idea in Judaism, and that is we do not believe in sundering of the body and the soul. We believe in a holistic system. We believe that the body is one part of the, uh, the, the person and the soul is the other part of the person. You cannot cut the two. You cannot cut the body of Klan Israel away from the soul of Klan Israel. You cannot cut the kingdom away from the priests and you cannot cut the holy away from the, 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 king, uh, the, the people, the nation. So the holy nation, kingdom of priests, very important. So right before the Jews received the Ten Commandments, they were to know that the material and spiritual must be fused. So the Ten Commandments, uh, actually we're going to talk about it, not Ten Commandments, Ten Sayings are the key to fusing the body and the soul, are the key to fusing the body public and the soul of the people. So that's a very important idea, the idea that there should be no dichotomy between the holy and the mundane. Everything should be fused together. You cannot be considered a spiritual people if society is unjust. So it's amazing. You'll be a priest, but you're going to be part of the kingdom. If you're going to be part of the kingdom, you've got to make sure it's a just kingdom. Neither can you be considered successful in the material world unless you have a spiritual dimension. So a person needs to be a goy, a material person, but also kadosh, a holy person. So holy and mundane, spiritual and nation, both. We must be a goy but we have to have a holy dimension. It's very important to take care of the material things in life, but also they should be interwoven with the spiritual parts of life. About 100 years ago in Europe, there was a big split. The secular leadership were telling everyone to leave. Leave Europe, get out of here, it's a dangerous place. Go to America, go to Israel, go anywhere, just keep away from Europe. The, the, year, the, the, the ground was burning from under their feet. The religious people, on the other hand, were telling people to stay. And don't go to the Trafe of Medina. Don't go to America, which is a, a Trafe Medina. It's a, it's a terrible place. You're going to lose all your spirituality. The material, secular leadership of the Jewish people wanted to save Jews and not Judaism. The religious leadership wanted to save Judaism and not Jews. We see the legacy of this battle going on today in Israel. Many Israelis hate Judaism because they feel it is preventing them from building... Uh, many ultras hate the secular establishment because they, hey, they may be saving Jews, but they are destroying Judaism. So both sides miss the point of Judaism. The extremes will destroy us. So we have to have both. We have to save the Jews and we've got to save Judaism. We've got to save the body and we've got to save the soul. We've got to save the nation and we've got to save the priests. We have to save everything because we're a fusion of both, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. What we need is the fusion of the material and the spiritual and the combination of nation and holiness.
It's not either one or the other, it's both. We need both. So it's very important. So at the three different stages of freedom from Egypt, the Jews achieved a certain level of belief in their recognition of God and his providence. Number one, when Moshe first came to Egypt and announced himself to the people and performed the signs and wonders that God had instructed him, it says, the people believed, and they heard, Hashem had remembered the Jewish people. Can everyone please put off their microphones? It's interfering. Please, everyone, put off your microphones. They believed and they, they heard that Hashem had remembered the chosen people. Hashem remembered their troubles. It says they bowed down. It says the Jews recognized that God had remembered the Jewish people. Okay, that's number one. That's the first part of Emunah, first part of belief. Number two, at the splitting of the sea. It says the Jews saw the, the big hand and the people feared Hashem. The second time it says they believed in God and they believed in Moshe, his servant, as well. And the third time it says, before giving the Torah, Hashem said to Moshe, I'm going to come to you in the thickness of the cloud because then the nation will pay attention when I speak to you. And you, they will also believe in you forever. So Rav, Moshe, Rav Chaim Friedlander, who was a student of Rabbi Eliyahu Dester, uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate because I learned, I studied at some time with all three students of Rav Dester. Rav Dester was a brilliant Musar personality at around the time of the Second World War and after the Second World War. And I knew three of his students, um, Rav Carmel, Rav Arya Carmel, um, Rav Friedlander, who we're going to quote now, and also Rav Suleiman Sasson, who was the head of my community in England, and he moved to Israel, and uh, he was one of the candidates for chief rabbi over here. But what I recognize all three of them was the tremendous, number one is their intellect, number two is their humility, and number three is their vast knowledge. So three things they combined, the students of Rav Dessler, here's one of them, Rav Haim Friedlander. So he says, these are three parts to our emunah, belief system. Number one is there's a creator. And this creator is not just a creator who walked away. There's a creator who involves himself in the affairs of the world. Hashem cares about us very much. Number two, a God who is in total control. He saved the Jews at the same time drowning the Egyptians. He is the only one who is in control. Number three is the truth of the Torah and the prophecy of Moshe was witnessed by millions of people, unlike other religions, which are based on revelation of a, a few people. This is the only religion in the world which was based on revelation to the whole nation. So 600,000 men between the age of 20 and 60, you have all the women and then you have all the children and the elder people. So you're talking about nearly two, over 2 million people. So they witnessed the divine revelation. And uh, the three main holidays emphasize this belief. Sukkot teaches us God's protection. We put up the sukkah, that's, that's a symbol of God's protection and providence over us. Pesach shows us Hashem's mastery over the universe. And Shavuot strengthens our conviction that God spoke to Moses and to us and gave these laws for us to follow. So we have these three ideas to renew and strengthen our faith. So Shavuot is a very important holiday. And this week's parasha is the parasha which we're going to read on Shavuot. 
So number one is, this is the time of Matan Torah. We got the Torah at Sinai. We got the Torah at Sinai. So the only thing is when you get something, it's not enough to get it. You have to actually receive it. And that's the part of Matan Torah, which people don't talk about. We get the Torah, but we have to actually receive it. How do you receive the Torah? And number one is if you have no effort, if you have no uh, interest in the game, if you have no uh, investment in the game, it's very important for a person to have an investment. You have to invest in Torah. To receive the Torah, a person has to invest in Torah. A person has to put effort into Torah. You've got to take it into your heart. It's not just to put it on the shelf. You've got to put it in your heart. A person's got to learn Torah and put it in their heart. Failing this, the Gemara says in Kiddushin, on page 66a, the Torah is placed in the corner. And whoever wants it has to come and take it. So we got the Torah. Yes, we got the Torah 3,300 years ago or so around. But the question is, what are we doing with it? Are we receiving it? Are we taking it? Are we using it? Are we putting it inside our psyche, inside our hearts? Otherwise, it's just left in the corner on a shelf. The Ramchal, Ramosh Chaim Luzato, writes in Ma'amar HaGiulai, in, the, in his uh, statement on redemption, Hashem's light has no limits. It's amazing. This concept is an amazing concept. Hashem's light has no limits. Hashem's energy has no limit. He says the only limit is in the recipient of the light. For example, you have a, a very brilliant rabbi, a very brilliant uh, professor. The only limits to getting that light is a person's own limits. How much light can they receive? How much attention are they paying? How wide is their brain? How can they increase their capacity? The limitation, he says, lies only on the recipient. And then he says, a very important idea. So Hashem's light is unlimited. How do we get the light? He says, the recipient, if the recipient's windows are darkened by their own baseness, that darkens the light that comes in. So even though the Torah was given, we have to accept it. We have to open these windows. We have to open, Hashem's light has no limits. The Torah has no limits. Literally, a person can learn Torah all their lives. And as Rabbi Eliezer says, Rabbi Eliezer Gadol, he was called the great Rabbi Eliezer. He was one of the rabbis, Rabbi Kiva. He says, there's so much Torah, it's like a sea. And how much Torah can I get? It's like how much a dog can lick from the sea. In other words, there's so much knowledge out there. And that's Hashem's light. Hashem's light is vast. And it only depends on how dark our windows are for the light to come in. So what does that mean? Hashem's light has no limits. The Midrash says, Abraham Avinu recognized Hashem from his own being. In other words, the light of Hashem penetrated Hashem, Abraham's own psyche. He got Hashem. He learned about Hashem from his own being. So it's possible to learn the truth without Torah. It's possible to learn the truth about God without Torah. How do we know? Because Abraham Avinu got to God without the Torah. And Yitro also got to God without the Torah. They learned it from their own beings. We see the light of God is unlimited. We just have to open the windows. Abraham Avinu knew how to, how to open the spiritual windows and he discovered Hashem. He discovered Hashem. However, if the heart is blocked and the windows are blackened, a person has to make a small opening. And that's a, a very important idea. The idea that if we make an opening like the, the smallness of a needle, Hashem will open it like the entrance of a whole hole. It's very important to make an opening for Hashem to give us the Torah through that opening, to darken, to open up the little bit of, of the darkness and so the light can come in. Even after the giving of the Torah, there's a, still a risk that the person will not recognize what he has been shown. 
But if he learns, Hashem will say to him through the Torah, choose this. Hashem talks to us. How does Hashem talk to us? Every time we read the words, by the bear Hashem and Moshe Lemor, whenever we read the words, Hashem said to Moshe, say, it's not just Hashem saying to Moshe, Hashem is talking to us. When we learn Torah, Hashem is talking to us. When we pray to God, we are talking to God. And when we learn Torah, Hashem is talking to us. We just have to apply the lessons of the Torah to our lives. So people say today, Hashem, I never heard Hashem talking to me. Well, Hashem talks to us through learning Torah. A person is going to have a conversation with God through the learning of the Torah. So when we pray, we pray, we talk to God. When we learn Torah, Hashem is talking to us. So how do, the question is, how do I apply what I learned from the Torah to my life? What is Hashem trying to tell me today about my life? And that's what a person should do when they learn Torah is, how can I improve myself? What is Hashem teaching me? How can I apply this to my life? What is Hashem trying to teach me today? So a person is going to actively accept the Torah to rouse the emotions and bring the Torah into one's heart. The Torah gives, the Torah was given, but it's got to be accepted as well. It's not just enough for the Torah to be given. It's got to be accepted as well. So there's a beautiful part of the tefillah, our prayers, which we say every morning in the morning prayers, just before the Shema. Hashem, you have loved us with love everlasting. And so on and so forth. It talks about the love of God for us. What, how does God express his love for us? Teach us your, your laws of life. So that we can do your will with a complete heart. Right? You had mercy on us. Give us the understanding and the wisdom to be able to learn and to teach, to keep and to do and to fulfill all the words of Torah with love. That is the bottom line. Look, we're praying to God to give us the ability to learn, to teach, to keep, and to fulfill all the words of Torah. And that is, we ask for, it became a beautiful song. Please Hashem, give us, lighten out our eyes with your Torah, lighten our lives with your Torah, lighten up our, our eyes with your Torah, so we can, our heart will cling to your mitzvot. You know, the Havitz Chaim used to say, says many people say this before the prayers, and then straight after the prayers, they run away. They're asking for God to uh, give them the light of their eyes to learn Torah, and then instead of sitting down after praying to learn a bit of Torah, they run away. So you say, what kind of deal is that? You're asking God to give you help to learn Torah, and then the person runs away. So it's very important. That's the preamble. The preamble is we have to Number one is unity. Number two is to welcome in strangers like Yitro. Moshe Rabbeinu welcoming in. It's not just the Torah for the Jewish people. It's for anyone who is welcome to listen and to listen in. And he wants to be a Jew. Please, the doors are open. You want to be a true Jew. You want to keep the Torah. You want to be a people of the book. Please join us. That's Yitro. Number three is this idea of praying to God, not just to give us the Torah, but to receive the Torah. We already have the Torah. We have to be the ones now to make the Torah part of ourselves. We have to be the ones to bring the Torah into our lives. So now it's interesting because before they get the Torah at Har Sinai, there are, there's a preamble over here. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot, it says, you know what it says, the Jews. <laughs> this is why on Shavuot, some people stay up all night. It's called Tikkun Leil Shavuot. It says when they got to Mount Sinai, they were so exhausted from the traveling that they went to sleep. And they forgot they're going to get the Torah the next day and they were sleeping. Hashem had to wake them up with a tremendous alarm clock. 
and this consisted of different parts. So I'm going to go through the different parts. This is the Barbanel. The Barbanel, Don Yitzhak Barbanel was one of the greatest uh, Spanish rabbis and leaders in the time of the, unfortunately, expulsion from Spain in 1492. He was a treasurer to Ferdinand and Isabella. He helped them so much, and yet they turned in all the Jews and they expelled them. And they tried to persuade him to convert to Christianity. And he said, no, I'm not going to convert to Christianity. I'd rather leave all my money behind and leave Spain for good. So he was the one, it says, who led the Jews out of Spain. So this is Don Yitzhak Barbanel. He has a beautiful commentary on the whole Tanakh. He had, imagine, in the middle of his uh, jobs as treasurers of Portugal, Spain, eventually Italy, he was writing commentaries to the Torah, uh, beautiful commentaries to the Torah. This is from the Barbanel. The Barbanel says a beautiful idea. He says the preamble to getting of the Torah was number one, kolot, voices, noises. The noises express themselves as thunder, tremendous thunder. Today in Israel, we had tremendous thunder. And uh, this, this is like a preamble to give you the Torah. Here we are. And Ra'amim, so first is kolot, voices, noises. They heard noises, massive noises. Number two, brakim. Brakim is lightning. They had these flashes of light. Number three, it says, Anan Kaved. Anan Kaved is heavy cloud. Number four, it says, Matar Muat, a little bit of rain. Number five, it says, there was a Kol HaShofar. There was the voice of the Shofar. Number six, it says, Kol Elohim. They heard the voice of God. Number seven, it says, Har Sinai Ashan Kulo. The whole mountain was on fire. There was smoke coming out the whole mountain. And number eight, it says, the whole mountain started shaking. So we have eight different experiences at the time of Matantara, eight different physical experiences, noises, lightning, thunder, earthquake, shofar, the voice of God, uh, smoke, everything's going on at the same time. These are, it's a tremendously overwhelming sen sensual experience. It's a very, very overwhelming sensual experience. The giving of the Torah was a tremendously overwhelming experience Essentially, it's very hard to focus, very hard to concentrate, very hard not to be scared, very hard to pay attention to what's going on around. The Midrash says the Jews ran away. They ran away. So it's very important to, to know that uh, this is a very overwhelming experience. So there are two routes to, to understand. This is Ababanel, beautiful Ababanel. There are two routes to understanding. How, what are the routes to understanding? He says, number one is intellectual pursuits. Through the intellect, through thinking, through using the brain, a person can understand. And the other route to understanding is through prophecy by the grace of God, through prophecy. So it's a knowledge transfer from God direct. So number one, there's a knowledge transfer by using one's own intellect. And number two is there's a knowledge transfer from God direct. So it's very important to know these two things. For Jews, we believe in two kinds of knowledge transfers. Number one is through using one's intellect, which is what all the college professors, all the intellectuals, all the scientists try and do, using one's brains to figure out knowledge. And number two is the spiritual, using Hashem giving us the knowledge through prophecy. So here on Mount Sinai, we're going to see a combination of both, according to Babano. The first way he says intellectual pursuits have a bad side. Why? Because there are always arguments and different opinions. So intellectual pursuits is not the answer. Why? Because there's always arguments and different opinions. As you find, he says, among the philosophers. This is a Barbanel. This is represented by kolot, voices. The first thing they heard was voices. This is the debates in intellectual pursuits. 
So this is the intellectual world. There's many contradictory opinions, and that is the voices they heard at Sinai. Number two, to show how far one can go in terms of intellectual pursuits, he talks about a little bit of brightening, and that is used as a light, flash of lightning. The flash of lightning is like an intellectual uh, eureka moment. It's like an, a eureka moment, flash of lightning. I get understanding, but it's only for a flash. It's not all the time. It's only when I'm uh, motivated, when I'm uh, thinking, and suddenly Hashem gives me that ability to know. That's a flash of inspiration. That's a, like a lightning. Number three, he says, we're tremendously limited in our observation of the physical world. And this is hinted to by the words, Matar Mu'at, there was a little bit of rain. A little bit of rain means a little bit of knowledge. And uncovered, and there was a thick cloud. So in other words, even if we use the intellectual approach, we're limited to a little bit of knowledge, and there's still a thick cloud. So however much we know, so however much we know, it's basically, it's still a small amount. So that's Chokhmah. Chokhmah is the ability to have that flash of lightning, flash of understanding, and that's the wisdom, that's what we call wisdom, is something you can understand from yourself, something you can learn using your own brains, and that is intellectual wisdom, but it's matar mu'ad, it's a small amount of rain, it's a very thick cloud, and then it says, there are four things, so there's four things that hint to this intellectual pursuit. Okay, so let me have number five, the shofar hints to prophecy. The shofar hints, the prophet Amos says in chapter uh, three, he says, Hashem will reveal the secrets to my servants, the prophets. And what does he call it? Shofar who? He calls it the voice of a shofar. So the shofar hints to the uh, prophecy, knowledge through prophecy. And then it says, by called shofar, it's the only time it says chazak me'od. It says by the thunder, it says, it's, it never says the word strong. It doesn't say the word chazak. But by the shofar, it says chazak me'od. It says very strong. So in other words, other sources of knowledge are weak. The shofar, which is a prophecy, is clear. There are no doubts. There are no two opinions. It doesn't say kolot. It doesn't say noises, voices. There's no, there's no contradictions. And then they started trembling. When they heard the shofar, that's when they trembled. Not when they heard the noises and thunder and the lightning. And then they heard Kol Elohim, the voice of a prophecy, which is the voice of Hashem. And then the mountain started smoking. The fire represents the Shekhinah and the smoke of the mountain shaking represents the judgments of the Shekhinah to straighten out their crookedness. So that's what the Ebenezer says. There's two parts to wisdom. The two parts to wisdom are, number one is intellectual wisdom. That was the first different signs they got on Mount Sinai. And the Torah says it was just matar muat, small amounts of rain, small amounts of knowledge. It's like a flash of lightning, like a eureka moment. That's chokhmah, flashes of lightning. But the higher level is the prophecy. We will get prophecy at the end of time. When the Mashiach will come, we'll get prophecy again. So I want to go through, you know, uh, when I ask people, do you keep mitzvot? Well, they say, well, you know what, we keep the Ten Commandments. It's not a dirty trick. My dirty trick is, what are the Ten Commandments? So number one is, we don't believe in Ten Commandments. The Torah doesn't talk about Ten Commandments. The Torah talks about ten sayings. Aseret hadivarim. There are ten sayings. It's the Catholics who talked about Ten Commandments. We don't talk about Ten Commandments. We talk about ten sayings. So I want to go through very quickly these ten sayings. So we'll know, each one of us will know what these ten sayings are and what's going on in the Torah, how do we explain them. So number one, before that, I want to bring down a Sefer Chinuch. 
The Book of Education, Sevrach Hinuch, was written in the Middle Ages by a Sephardic rabbi. We don't know who it was. He wrote it anonymously. In his introduction, he says, I'm writing this for teenagers who are playing around on Shabbat. See, nothing's new, nothing's changed. I'm writing this book for teenagers who will read this on Shabbat instead of wasting their time playing ball or whatever it is. Nothing's changed really. And so it's a beautiful book, Sefer HaChinuch. It's basically about every single parasha in the Torah where he writes about the mitzvah in the parasha. So he just takes the mitzvah in the parasha and discusses the mitzvah. So Sefer HaChinuch says, I write the beginning of Sefer HaChinuch in his introduction. He says there are certain mitzvot which apply 24-7. There are certain mitzvot in the Torah who can apply. You can be anywhere, anytime. But if you think about it, because they're, they're mitzvot that apply in the mind. There are six mitzvot which apply in a person's mind. And these mitzvot can apply 24-7. So say a person can't sleep. So think about one of the six mitzvot. And this is where a person is fulfilling a mitzvah just by thinking. Anytime a person has nothing to do, think about one of these six mitzvot. You can fill the mitzvah just by thinking. What, and these mitzvot are somewhat linked to the 10 sayings which we're going to talk about. So number one, he says, six constant mitzvot, 24-7, every single day. Anytime you do them, you get a mitzvah. Number one, a person's got to believe there is a God. So number one is, a person says, you know, he says, says to himself, I believe in God. Okay, you've done a constant, one of the constant mitzvot. Number two, there's only one God. Oh, only one God, that's another mitzvah. So I believe in God, I believe in one God, two mitzvot. And number three is, I believe there's no other God. There's no other God, three mitzvot. I love God. What do you mean I love God? I want to do, I want to make God happy. I want to do his mitzvot. I want to come close to him. Number, three, number, uh, number five, he says, respect God. So have some respect. Think that God is watching you when you do this in front of God. Number six, don't go after one's heart and one's eyes. The Torah says in the Shema, you see something nice, you want to look at it. Don't go after your heart and your eyes. Is talking about don't go after immorality and don't go after idolatry. Your heart is idolatry, your eyes are immorality. The Torah says, so that's a mitzvah which applies 24-7. What a person thinks about, a person says, you know what, I better not go in that direction. My mind should not go in that direction. It's a mitzvah in the Torah not to go after your heart and not to go after your eyes. And those are six, I just want to repeat them again, six constant mitzvot. Number one, there is a God. Number two, there's only one God. Number three is there's no other God. Number four is love God. Number five is respect God, revere God. Number six is don't go after the heart and the eyes. Those are six constant mitzvot. And that's our introduction to the 10 sayings, because the 10 sayings, basically, the first few at least, are related to these six constants, except for the last, last one. So number one, this is the first of the 10 sayings. And this has became a controversial uh, aspect between the Catholics and the Jews. The Catholics said this is not a commandment. This is just an introduction. Why? Because the Torah says, I am the Lord your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt. So is that a mitzvah or is that a statement? So we Jews, we say that is a mitzvah. I am the Lord your God. We have to believe in one God. That is a mitzvah. It is not just a statement. It's actual mitzvah. Mitzvah to say, the Ramam writes, it's a positive mitzvah to believe that there's a God. I am the Lord your God. To get out of Egypt. It's a positive mitzvah to believe in God. So it's not just a statement. It's not an opening statement. You know, there's a beautiful debate between the Rambam and the Bahag, Baal Halachok Dolot, is the mitzvah to believe in God a mitzvah or is it a pre mitzvah? What does that mean? So, according to Rambam, it's a mitzvah. In fact, if you open the book of the Rambam, 
on Sefer Mitzvot, the Book of Mitzvot, which he wrote. Um, it says over there explicitly, the first mitzvah is to believe that there is a creator, there's a, there's a God. So Bahag says, no, there's no mitzvah to believe in the creator. Why? Because it's a pre-mitzvah. What do you mean it's pre-mitzvah? How can you have a commandment without a commander? How can you make something a commandment before you know there's a commander? So it's very important to know there's a commander. That's what this mitzvah is. This is the mitzvah of telling us there's a commander. Ramam says, that is a mitzvah. To know there's a commander is a mitzvah. Bahag says, no. He says, no. How can you have a mitzvah without the commander? So the commander is a pre-mitzvah. Believing God is a pre-mitzvah. That's a very interesting idea. We don't follow that opinion. We follow the opinion of the Rambam that the mitzvah itself is to believe in God. Number one is believe in God. That's the first saying that I am the Lord your God who took it out of Egypt, which implies that believe in me. You have to believe in me. Why? Because you yourselves witnessed it. You have to believe in me. Why? Because you yourselves were taken out of Egypt. You know, you know me firsthand. You've seen my power. You've seen my, me at, at work. You know me firsthand, and therefore, that's the first mitzvah, is to believe in me. Number two. There's no other God in Hashem. The person's going to know for sure there is no other God. And a person who says there's no God, that's number one, is a kofir, denies Judaism. Number two is a person who believes there's other gods is an idolater. So it's very important for a person, a Jew, got to clear. I know there's a God. I know there's no other God. There's only one God. There's no other God. Uh, number three is not to make any images, not to make any idols. A person should worship idols. You know, it's very strange because um, there's a lot of Jews lost by the wayside. A lot of Jews join cults. You know, there's a famous joke. The joke is that a cult opened a branch office in Brooklyn. And this, uh, this famous uh, this woman, uh, she's a typical Brooklyn woman. She goes and joins the cult. And they say, sure, Mrs. Goldberg, you want to join the cult? She says, sure, I want to go. I want to go to the, I want to go and see this uh, holy man in India. And uh, Mrs. Goldberg, she joins the cult. She joins this uh, Krishna group or whatever it is. And she goes, uh, she joins them on the trip to India to see the holy man. And they get to the, this, this big building. And the, the guide says, there's two, there's two doors. One door is for those who want to go and wait and have as much time with the holy man as you want. But the other door is just say four words. So she says, you know, she goes in the short line, the line for four words, and she's waiting for the holy man. It's a very quick line. She goes in and she says, Moshe Lay, please come home. So that was happened to be the holy man was no other than her son who had left and joined the cult and became the head of the cult. How many Jews have joined cults? You know, maybe that's one thing good about COVID. Maybe the cults can't meet anymore, but they meet on Zoom, whatever it is. So there's many Jews who are parts of cults. So that's part of uh, not having other gods. Uh, Buddha is another god. Uh, Krishna is another god. How many Jews are taken by all these things? I knew of a case, a certain case of a woman who uh, unfortunately had a little idol in her bedroom. And she looked like she was a very religious woman. She had an idol in her, she would offer up incense to her idol in her, in her bedroom can imagine. So it's, don't think it doesn't exist today. A Jew must be very solid. Number one is we believe in God. But two is we believe there's no other God. And number three is we're not allowed to make images and idols. We're going to see which kind of images. These are images over here. We're talking about images that images that you worship. Because Jews are not allowed to have images that a person worships. So a person is not allowed to worship idols. So familiarity breeds contempt. By taking God's name in vain, a person is being familiar with God. So it's very important. That's why we don't even say God's name the way it's written. We pronounce God's yeah. name differently. 
we don't pronounce Hashem's name, the Yud Kevavke itself. We pronounce it Aleph Dalet Dun Yud. And that's the reason why is we're not allowed to be familiar with God. So what is a false oath? What does it mean? There's two kinds of false of, There's four kinds of false oaths. Saying this table is a table. So a person swears by God's name, I swear this table is a table. He just wasted his God's name. Because obviously a table is a table. Or he swears that something which is, isn't. He says a table is a chair. And it's not. It's really a table. So he's taking God's name in vain. Right? Or he's saying, I will do something which is impossible. I will stay awake for six days in a row. It's impossible. And therefore he took God's name in vain. So all these are different kinds of taking God's name in vain. The most classic one for us itself is saying a bracha for no reason. It says it was God's name. And he's making a mockery, or he didn't. He said the wrong bracha. So according to Rambam, that is taking God's name in vain. So now, what do you do to fix saying a blessing for the wrong reasons or saying a blessing in vain? And the answer is to quickly say Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Leolam Vaed. Okay, to to say that quickly, and then a person can cover themselves for saying God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So Rambam says, how do you remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? And the answer is by making Kiddush. We remember the Shabbat day at the beginning with Kiddush. And we remember the Shabbat day at the end with Havdalah. So now it's interesting because we have two different accounts of these 10 saints. We have two different accounts of these 10 sayings. The first account is in this week's parasha in, in Yitro. And the second account is in Parashat which is right at the end of the Torah. And the two accounts are slightly different variations in the fourth commandment. And the variation is, is it Zachor Yom HaShabbat or is it Shamor Yom HaShabbat? So number one is the mitzvah to remember Shabbat. How do you remember Shabbat? When Shabbat comes in with Kiddush, when Shabbat goes out with Havdalah, that's according to Rambam. It's very important for a person to think when they do Kiddush, I'm fulfilling the mitzvah from the Torah to make Kiddush. As it says, Zachor Yom HaShabbat, remember the Shabbat to make it holy. And similarly, Havdalah, when a person makes Havdalah, to have in mind, I'm fulfilling the mitzvah from the Torah, or making Havdalah, which is sanctifying Shabbat on the way out. We sanctify Shabbat on the way in. In other words, Shabbat itself is an island of time. It's very hard to think about that, that we are sanctifying time. It's very hard. It's esoteric. The idea of sanctifying time. You know, it's interesting when in the middle, in the Roman period, there was a a famous historian called Tacitus. Tacitus said, number one, he said, Jews, idolaters. Why? Because they don't believe in God. Why? Because their God is invisible. They, the ancient man cannot perceive of God as being invisible. The fact that today we know that there's many invisible things that exist. Uh, for example, uh, gravity. It exists because we feel the effects of gravity. But we know there's many different things. There's a whole electromagnetic spectrum that we, we can't see, but we know exists. For example, your Wi-Fi, for example, uh, uh, 5G networks, all these networks, uh, radio, the radio waves over the, all these things we know exist, but we can't see them. So we're, today we're very fortunate because we have these experiences in our lives to realize that things that don't exist, that, that do exist, that are invisible. Things do exist that are invisible. It's very important to know. Today we have these things in our lives. So keeping Shab Shabbat is an island of time. Shabbat is an island of time. Hashem gave us an island of time. And then we have the Mitzvah Shamor during Shabbat. Remember the Shabbat, uh, keep the Shabbat. How do you keep Shabbat? 339 different ways of keeping Shabbat. It's very involved. This is not the time. But that's basically what the Mitzvah is telling us. This is the Mitzvah of keeping Shabbat. Then we have the famous Mitzvah of Kaved et Avicha Honor your father and mother. Now, what's interesting about this Mitzvah is it doesn't say to love your father and mother. 
It's very interesting. It doesn't say to be a friend to your father and mother. It says, honor your father and mother. And later on it says, respect your father and mother. So it actually says, respect your mother and father. So honoring one's father and mother is, is one of the major sayings in the Torah. And what's the, what's the connection over here? So the answer is, the connection is our father and mother are physical creators. If we cannot honor our physical creators, how can we honor our spiritual creators? It's a very, very important concept of honoring one's parents, honoring one's physical parents. How does one honor one's physical parents? So the Quran says you honor them by providing for them. Now, if a person, if the parents have money, you provide for them from their own. In other words, you have to help them. How do you help them? So the father says, I need some food. Go buy me some food. Okay, dad, give me a credit card. I'll go buy you food. I don't have to buy it on my own account. I have to buy it on their own account because they can afford it. But if the parents cannot afford it, the son, if he can afford it, he has to pay for them. So it's honoring parents is a tremendous mitzvah of feeding them, clothing them, helping them in every way they, they would like. It's, it's an interesting mitzvah because it's a mitzvah which is based on uh, customer satisfaction. You only fulfill the mitzvah of honoring parents if the parents are happy with what you did for them. If the parents are unhappy with what you did, then there's no mitzvah, a person not getting a mitzvah of honoring their parents. So it's a very interesting mitzvah. It's a mitzvah based on customer satisfaction. So, uh, so every parent can be different in a way because they can say, you know what, that's not what I call honoring me. This is what I call honoring me. The parents interpret the mitzvah the way they want. So classically, by feeding them, by clothing them, by helping them, by lifting them up, picking them up, it depends on how much help they need. That's the amount of honor a person has to give. Then there's another mitzvah, which is respecting one's parents, which is to give them respect. There's a beautiful story. Uh, there's a very famous Baal Teshuvah in Israel called Uri Zohar. Uri Zohar was a very famous comedian who became a Baal Teshuvah. And people, when they saw him on the stage, they thought that was, at first, they thought that was part of his act. He came out with a yarmulke, he came out with tzitzit, and they started laughing because they thought it was part of his act. But eventually, when they realized it was real, they stopped laughing. <laughs> but anyway, Uri Zohar says a very interesting thing. So number one, he says, when he became a, when he was starting to become Baal he told his rabbi, his rabbi says, I need to go to the beach every Shabbat. That's part of my custom. For every Shabbat, every Shabbat I've been to the beach since uh, when I was a kid, I need to go to the beach. So the rabbi was very smart. He didn't say, don't go to the beach. He says, okay, so go by bike. Don't go in a car, go by bike. It was lessen what you're doing. And eventually you'll get to that stage. And eventually it says, yeah, he did. He did start keeping Shabbat. But then the next, the next bridge was, is he going to send his kids to yeshiva? So the rabbi said, you know, we'll just try it out for a week. See what happens. So he started sending his kids to yeshiva. And it says one day he was walking into the kitchen and he sees his son, who must be like six years old, stand up when he walked into the kitchen. So he walked out of the kitchen. And a few minutes later, he walked back in the kitchen. And it says his son stood up again. So he says, what's going on? There's something strange going on. He walks out of the kitchen and he walks back in and the son stood up again for him. He says, tell me, he says, why are you standing up when I walk in? He says, daddy, he says, Abba, he says, I'm giving you honor. He says, that was it. He, and he was sold. He was sold. He sends his kids to yeshiva. But it's interesting how honoring parents is a very important vehicle that we all have to use. We all have to honor our parents. A person who has parents, very lucky. They're very privileged to have parents, try and honor them. The minimum is that they're far away, call them as much as they want, um, make them happy and tell them what you did. They want, they're involved, they want to be, they want to know. It depends on a parent's 
involvement. So the more the parent is involved, the more they want to be involved, the more honor you have to give them in that, in that sense. So everyone's honor depends on what they want, what the parent wants. It's very customer uh, oriented, customer service oriented. Okay, so that is honoring parents. We're moving on. The next mitzvah is don't murder, don't murder. So now what's interesting is this idea that there's a balance between the first five and the last five. That if you look at the Ten Commandments, this idea of Ten Commandments, there's a first five and last five. The first five uh, between man and God and the last five between man and man. Interesting. You know, this is one of the shortest speeches that really caused a massive impact. It's a massive, it's a very short speech. It's just a few lines and yet it caused a massive impact on the world. We cannot imagine a world without the Ten Commandments over here. It's very hard to imagine a world where these mitzvot don't apply, where especially the last few we're going to see, murdering. Murder was considered legitimate in those days. It's a, a pagan society was terrible. It was just basically, it was a power of might. Might is right. And it's interesting, Hitler really is a mamzer, but he knew a, a more about Judaism than most Jews. And he says, in Mein Kampf, he says, the reason why I want to destroy Jews and Judaism is because they gave us this idea that might is not right. And therefore, we, are, we, we control ourselves. We don't try and take over the world. Might is not right. That's one of the powers of Judaism. This is the mitzvah, do not murder. So even though a person is tough and they can take over, and they can kill other people, don't murder. So it's a very important moral. It's a foundation of society. Don't murder, number one. Number two don't commit adultery. So now a person says, you know what, what's, there's a massive difference between murder and adultery. So what's the, why is adultery so prohibited? Like murder, why is it next to murder? So number one is there's many different acts of passion. Acts of crimes of passion are tremendous. A lot of, a lot of crimes, a lot of murders are crimes of passion because people have jealousy. So of course, adultery is related to murder. That's number one. And number two is adultery itself is one of the biggest breakdowns of society. If a person does not know who their parents are, a person does not know, you know, it's interesting, in Newark, they say a lot of kids don't know who their parents are, who their fathers are at least. They know who their mother is, but they don't know who their father is. It causes a breakdown in society. So not knowing one, who one, one's, one's mother is, who one's father is, adultery. So it's very hard. So a person doesn't know who their parents are. So that's adultery is a cause of breakdown of society because the basic building block of society is the family unit. So adultery breaks the family unit. Okay, after adultery, we have the mitzvah of not stealing. Now this interesting mitzvah, it's not talking about regular stealing because regular stealing is repeated again, the Torah, it's talking about kidnapping. So today we have these idea of people who are being sold as slaves, different kinds of slaves. Amazing, in, even today's century, in, in this modern age, we have this concept of different kinds of slaves being sold around in different societies for different things. And there's a mitzvah over here, not to kidnap someone and sell them as a slave or hold them as a slave. It's actually in Jewish law, it's a capital punishment, it's a capital offense to, to buy and sell slaves, to own slaves. So these are free people and you're buying them and you're selling them as slaves, you're taking them, kid, you're kidnapping them to hold them for uh, slavery. And then we have the mitzvah of not have bearing false witness. So obviously any society of, now it's interesting, Judaism, someone asked me this question a few weeks ago, Judaism does not say Lies are an absolute evil. That's Kant. That was uh, one of the famous uh, philosophers, Kant. Judas does not say lie is absolutely wrong. It's not one of the three cardinal sins. We find there's a concept of the Torah of Darkei Shalom, of lying for the sake of peace. A person's going to be obviously very careful not to use it too many times. 
Uh, it's like the guy who called Wolf. But lying itself, for example, if the Nazis knock on the door and say, are you hiding any Jews over here? Obviously, you're allowed to tell a lie because human life is number one. If, uh, if uh, there's a problem of shalom by between people and by saying a small lie, you can make peace between them, you're allowed to tell a small lie. So we see telling a lie is not the highest value. Not telling a lie is not the highest value. However, it causes a breakdown. It can cause a breakdown in society if the lies are used to pervert justice. And that's what the mitzvah is telling us. Don't tell lies. Who is it talking about? Talking about a, a witness in a court of law because telling lies in law in, in justice system is, can pervert justice. So that's, and the last one is the hardest one. The last one is the icing on the cake, which is not to covet and not to desire someone else's possessions. Not to covet and not to desire someone else's possessions. That is really the hardest mitzvah because that's, again, that's a mitzvah in person's mind. Now, what's the difference between coveting and desiring? So interesting, in this week's parasha, it just says, Lo tachmod, don't covet. What's coveting? Coveting. Coveting is when a person wants something someone else has, but they're not satisfied just to want it. They actually go through a process to try and get it. They actually make a plan of how to get it. And then they realize their plan. That's coveting. When a person transgresses coveting only when they actually get what they wanted. So, for example, the classic case is the case of Ahab. Ahab was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom of the ten tribes. And Ahab wanted Navot's vineyard. He desired his vineyard very much. And eventually his wife, Isabel, uh, frames, frames Navot, gets him killed, and she, prevents, she presents the vineyard to the king. That was a classic act of coveting. Why? Because it led to actually taking the thing. The harder part is This is brought down in Parashat by Khanan, uh, and that is don't desire it even. Even a person cannot, covet, cannot uh, take it for any reason, but I want that one. So for example, if I pass someone else's car and I say, I like that car, no problem. But if I say, I want that car, I want that one, I don't want any other car, that's the one I want. Usually this is uh, for antiques, something you cannot buy in a store. This is usually for property because you cannot uh, replace the, the position of the property. And that's where people transgress this law of not uh, desiring someone else's thing. So a person sees this beautiful uh, house and location. I like the location. It's very important not to say, I want that. Uh, that's coveting. Okay, my friends, uh, hopefully you'll join us next week. We'll have less uh, antics on our line and we'll have more clarity and more peace. And let's all accept the Torah again. As I said, we got the Torah. Now all we have to do is accept it.